Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning. Isn't it a beautiful day? Man, it's good to see you here today uh, on this beautiful day, and uh, welcome to church family and visitors who are watching from home. I am eager to get into the Word with you today. A lot that I want to cover in this series is already turning uh, longer than I intended it to, but it's, it's, it's good. Uh, but before we do that, I want to, most of you know uh, Nick and Sherry and Dakobi Mania. Uh, you guys stand up for a second if you would. I know most of you know them. And uh, most of you know they are moving to Texas. Stay standing for a moment unless, unless you're unable to. Uh, <laughs> see, legalists. I can't wait till you guys go to Texas. No, <laughs> most of you know they're moving to Texas. They're moving this week. This is their last Sunday with us for a while. And uh, I just want to take a moment to thank you guys for being here and your, your faithful attendance, your faithful service over a lot. How many, how many years have you guys been here since near the beginning? I know. What's that? Since 81. Praise the Lord. That's faithfulness. And, uh, and you're, again, not just being here, your service, your work in this church, your, your support for this church. Uh, and I'm thinking especially over the last few uh, months as Sherry has been a lifesaver uh, filling in the office uh, for Brenda, and uh, but they've served in many different areas of the church over over all these years, and uh, you know it's tough when someone who's been a part of your family for so long, uh, so many years, it's tough to accept that uh, new chapters still happen, right? There's new uh, new parts of our life, new seasons in life, and uh, new adventures, and uh, this is one for them. They're moving to the Fort Worth area, and they're going to be uh, hooking up with Eagle Mountain Church, and uh, guys, I just want to say thank you again, and that we'll miss you. We're going to miss you like crazy, and uh, Jacoby, we're going to miss our chats in the office, and thanks for remembering me when you go through the uh, hot sauce stores and bringing me some good stuff back, and uh, I'll, uh, you're going to be in Texas now, so you can get your own firecrackers, right? Yo. Wait, 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 what? Oh, yeah, and also what? Ghost pepper lollipop. We had one of those, didn't we? Does it have a scorpion inside it? I guess we had a scorpion pepper lollipop with an actual scorpion inside it. How many licks does it take? Uh, Listen, um, final word before I let you sit down. If you reach the point where it's just too hot or too Texas-y down there, uh, we'll keep your seats for you. Obviously, welcome back at any time. You'll always be a part of our church family, and we, your church family, speak blessings over you. We pray God's manifested protection, provision, healing, and blessings over your lives as you make this move. We love you. Amen. Thank you. Now, I'm continuing today with a series called Stay the Course, which is a study in the book of Hebrews. It's not really a verse-by-verse study, although it might seem like that so far, and it's going to continue to seem like this today. It'll speed up. I'm almost positive. Uh, But 
the purpose of this letter, as uh, we have begun to establish anyway, is to encourage these Jewish believers, Jewish converts to Christianity, which were the first converts to Christianity, to not give up on the promises of Jesus, to stay the course, to not backslide, to not drift away. The concern apparently is that many of them have begun to backslide, not in the sense that we use it. We talk about, when we talk about backsliding, we talk about people who drift into a lifestyle of sin, ignoring church, ignoring the people of God, ignoring the Bible, ignoring the things of God. Here he's talking about slipping back into the Old Testament law. And uh, not necessarily coming out yet he warns that there, there's a time where it'll, it'll slip into this place where they reject Jesus vocally as their Messiah, but that they've simply begun to suffer, and uh, they're not seeing things as Christians, I guess, that they thought they would see. Uh, it's, their, it's their theology that he's challenging in this case, not necessarily their sinful lifestyle, although he does touch on that. They've become weary in well-doing. And they have begun to doubt the things that brought them to Christ in the first place. Now, the first week, I made a case for Paul being the author, and we don't know for sure, but he was. And we looked at how the author <laughs> jams all of these Old Testament passages throughout the book, but especially in the first chapter. He just quotes passage after passage of the Old Testament that refer to Jesus, prophesy Jesus, the Messiah, and he does this in order to prove that Jesus is superior to the angels and then later on to the priests and prophets that they revere. And he includes in one of these passages, he includes Psalm 8, which is David talking, you know, uh, what is man that that would take thought of him? You, put, you have created all this, your creation is marvelous, that's the work of your fingers, and you have put all things under his feet. Under his feet, the his is us. It's you and me. He's talking about mankind's feet. And he acknowledges that these Hebrews, these Jewish believers, and us, by the way, we do not necessarily see all things under our feet, do we? Don't we still sometimes scratch our head and say, we know how it's supposed to be, but we're not seeing it or we're not experiencing it. This is one of the earliest things that he is addressing in this letter, and it carries through the whole letter, as you will clearly see. Uh, and this is a common frustration, as I said, but what is more interesting to me is the author of Hebrews' response, or God's response through this author. Because the answer he keeps coming back to, he keeps coming back to through this whole letter, is not a philosophical answer, or a theological answer, his answer is the person of Jesus. In Hebrews 2.9, he writes, but we see Jesus. We don't see the answers. We don't see uh, how some of this stuff can make sense. And rather than offer him an answer, and I'm not saying, I don't believe that he didn't have an answer. I think he could have given a very logical uh, explanation for these things. Um, but really, uh, you could take this, why don't we see as he says, he, he's right, you can read it again, we do not yet see all things under his feet. Well, why? This is kind of uh, just another version of the age-old question. If God is all good and if God is all powerful, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? There are things that are difficult to explain. Now, I have heard good answers to that question, and you have too. 
C.S. Lewis gives a marvelous answer to that question. Ravi Zacharias gives one of the all-time best answers to that question. But what's his response? Um, if Jesus really is the Messiah and we're supposed to be in that place of victory, why isn't that working out? Well, let me slow down for a second. Again, he's quoting David in Psalm 8. But when David writes what he wrote, he's referring to Genesis, isn't he? That in the order of creation, uh, and, the, and the, obviously the, the Jews, the Hebrews would have known this, that God, when he created man, told him to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and have dominion over it. Remember that? And uh, the attentive Jew knew his place in the creation order. And he also knew that the reason things weren't manifestly like that were because, was because what? Adam sinned. And we inherited that sin, and that order of authority has been turned upside down. Upside down, that when man sinned, he essentially ceded his authority to Satan. And that brought in the curse that God pronounced, I don't believe, this is going way back to when we started going through the Bible, when God said, cursed is the earth because of you, he was not saying, because I'm mad at you, I am cursing the earth. He's saying, because you have strayed from my blessing and you have yielded your authority to the destroyer, you have invited and opened the door for this curse because that's what the devil does. Anyway, uh, the... uh, So the Jew knew this. The Jew knew, all right, here's the created order. I'm supposed to be on top. I also know why I'm not. It's because of sin. But he also knew that God had a plan of redemption. And there were two men that the Jews held in the highest esteem in God's plan. And one, of course, was Abraham. God created the Jewish people, the Hebrews, out of the lineage of Abraham. He is their father in the faith because God actually cut covenant with Abraham and told him what? told him a number of things, but the promise we always look at is, I will bless you, I will make you a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This was God talking about bringing Jesus through the lineage of Abraham, through the Jewish people. The other man held in the highest esteem by the Jews was, of course, Moses, the prophet, the lawgiver. And it was this law, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that uh, distinguished Jews from all the nations on the earth. This law told the Jews essentially how to appropriate the blessings that were promised to the seed of Abraham. There was, again, a a pronouncement of blessing, a promise of blessing that God made to Abraham over his lineage. And the law told them, here is how to walk in that blessing. And it gets pretty specific. If you do this and this and this, You will be blessed in this way, this way, and this way. You will be well supplied. You will be healed. You will be protected and victorious over your enemies. And this healing will not just extend to you, but to your household and to even your livestock. You won't have any lack. Uh, Divine provision, divine protection, divine healing. But if you don't do these things, you are under a curse. Again, not necessarily that God is going to blast them, but... Since the whole world was already under a curse due to Adam's sin, you step outside your end, you don't hold up your end of this covenant agreement, and you are placing yourself back under this curse. So, he gives them the law, 
and says, just do these things, and my blessing's going to rest on you. And again, the Jews knew this, and they knew. They also knew that even though they had this covenant, they had this law, they knew they had not kept it. They knew they had blown it. And the Jewish mindset for centuries was simply, we've got to do better. We know what happens when we break our end of the covenant. We go into captivity. We lose our health. We lose our provision. We lose our freedom. So let's just do better, and one of these days God's going to set things right. He's going to bring the Messiah and restore us to this place of victory. When really the lesson they were supposed to be getting and eventually did was, here's what the covenant is for, here's what the law is for, to show us that we are by nature unable to hold up our end. That if we are going to ultimately be saved, it ain't going to happen because we held up our end of this agreement. Not that there's anything wrong with the covenant, not that there's anything wrong with God's law. The only reason it failed, or that the only thing it lacked, was us, our end of it, our inability to keep it. So the Messiah wasn't really here just to put them back in, in a place of victory, but to save us from the sin that, and, that, that made it impossible for us to keep covenant with God. So... The author says here, I get it. You don't see the answers. You don't see your life, why your life is the way you think it should be, but you do see Jesus. Never forget that at the center of all this is not a new list of rules or a new idea, but a man, God the man, Jesus Christ, okay? And don't forget who he is. Don't forget what he did, and he launches into this reminder of who he is and what he has accomplished. He's already, in chapter 1, again, he's demonstrated that Jesus is superior to the angels, and then he reminds him in chapter 2 that Jesus, though he was God, was willingly made a little lower than God, meaning what? He was made like us, which Psalm 8 describes as a little lower than God. Uh, and why? Why did he lower himself to that position? So that he could taste death. All right? Now, what we looked at last week was the statement that the fear of death keeps people in bondage, keeps people in bondage to sin. Uh, if I'm going to die, I need to live all I can. I need to live for me. I need to get all I can out of life because you only go around once. I can't re-preach that message this morning, but if you missed it, please listen to it. It's an important part of this, of this series. Now the letter moves into or starts to move into a longish section about how Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Now, in order to get the most out of this section, start by remembering that the priest had a defined role in the life of the Old Testament Jew. The priest was a kind of intercessor. Uh, the priest was the one who bridged the gap symbolically. He only symbolically bridged the, cap, the gap between sinful man and God. Uh, you remember that the prophet... The prophet's role was to represent God to man. Thus saith the Lord. And they would speak boldly, and they would speak uh, some, sometimes harsh words, sometimes uh, warnings, but he was representing God to the people. The role of the priest was to represent man to God. All right? Prophet and priest. Moses, kind of, uh, Moses operated in both of those roles. And this letter reminds us again and again that at the core of the priestly duties, because the priests had a number of duties, but at the center of the priestly duties was what? It was sacrifices. It was offerings for sin. 
the highest duty that the highest priest performed was to take the blood of an innocent lamb one day a year on the Day of Atonement, take it into not just the temple or the tabernacle, uh, not just into the holy place, but behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood of the innocent lamb on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? tells us here in Hebrews that there was evidence of man's sin. There was the broken tablets indicating how man had broken God's law. There was Aaron's rod that budded, indicating that man, reminding us that, that uh, man had rejected God's authority. And there was the pot of manna, which was man's rejection of God's provision. Remember, they complained, we are sick of this manna, give us something to eat. So this was what the high priest did. His highest duty, the highest high priest had the highest duty of going in and making this, this offering, this sacrifice. So, uh, he starts this section by comparing Christ to Moses. Let's look at it. In Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. <laughs> For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Again, Moses, he's not denigrating Moses, and he's not saying that Jesus is supplanting Moses. He says Moses was the best he could be at what he did, but what he was ultimately was a servant of God. And the highest-ranking servant is never going to outrank the master. He's never going to outrank the son, the heir, right? So, establish this right off the bat, Jesus is superior to Moses. And moving on, Hebrews 3, picking up in verse 7, this is the long, there's one other long passage, but this is the longest passage we'll read today. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We're going to come back to that verse. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is the second time he pulls that verse out. And I know, I said, like I said, this is not a verse-by-verse -verse study. And we seem to be moving awfully slowly. Uh, but where it will begin to move quickly, we will move quickly through chapters 5 to 9. Okay? Deal? This passage is obviously referring, uh, ultimately, ultimately, there, there was uh, the day of Korah's rebellion, there were some other episodes, but ultimately what it's referring to is Israel's refusal to enter into the land of promise after their uh, glorious departure from Egypt. Now, the story was this. 
I know you know this, but remember this for context. When they were delivered from Egypt, it was a glorious moment in history. There were years of suffering, years of slavery, years of bondage, and they were delivered at a specific moment. And when they left Egypt, the Word of God tells us clearly that he brought forth his people with joy. It was dramatic. It was a celebration. He brought them out with silver and with gold. They plundered Egypt. There was not one feeble person among their tribes. And the, de the, the departure, not just the leaving of Egypt, but the manner, the Passover, the sudden release, and then the, the dividing of the Red Sea, their crossing on dry land, and then the sea swallowing up their enemies. The pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. The visible presence of God. And yeah, there were some hiccups in those early days. You know, they were fearful. They go, oh, now we're thirsty. We've been out here a few days and now it's not looking so good. And, but God was patient with them. This was all still new. It was still early. And Moses would intercede for them. And uh, again, God was patient. God was merciful. But then, now we're up to about a year, maybe a little less, after leaving Egypt, they come to the land of promise. This is what God didn't just get them out of Egypt. He said, I'm taking you back to the land I promised Abraham that you would inhabit. Uh, the only problem is there's other people living there right now. So they got to go. Shows them the land. You remember the spies, one spy from each tribe goes in there. Ten of them come back and say, wow, it's, it's every bit the land God said it was. It's outstanding. It's the best place we've ever, we've ever seen. Too bad we can't take it because it's full of giants. And they'll kill us. They're not afraid of us. We're afraid of them. Only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said we are well, well able to take it. But the people believed the bad report, and they did not obey. And this is really inexcusable because of everything they had seen. We don't have an excuse for not believing everything we read in this Bible, but they had seen with their own eyes the plagues and the Red Sea and the provision, and all these miraculous things they had seen in the space of a year or a little more. And now they will not cross the Jordan into the land of promise. And so, here's what's interesting. They were afraid despite all of that, and what does God call it here? That they, uh, they will not enter my rest because of their fear? No. They will not enter my rest because of their disobedience? No. They will not enter my rest because of their unbelief. Now, I've heard many times that the opposite of faith is fear. That's not right. The opposite of faith is doubt. But fear feeds your doubts and will produce disobedience. The word feeds your faith and will produce obedience. Okay? So God always connects disobedience to unbelief. And to disobey, even today, is a manifestation of unbelief, no matter what you think you believe. Now, but look again at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. The beginning of our confidence. That's the moment you believed. Your first love. What was it like? And some of you have a more dramatic testimony. But most of you, all of you, I, I, I maintain that even if you can't, quote the date, you do remember the moment you got saved. If you are saved, you know where you were the day, right? 
I remember, I couldn't tell you the date, but I remember I walked the aisle, I remember the sermon, I remember what church I was in, I remember what youth group I was in, I remember what house I was in, I remember what conversation I was in, I remember the circumstances of my salvation. And you came to Christ for a reason, and it was a moment. Again, it was a dramatic moment. It was a life-changing moment for you. Even if there weren't fireworks, even if there wasn't a vision, you made a decision, and something brought you to that decision. And God is saying, remember that. What was it that brought you to that decision? What did you experience? Hold fast to that confidence. As confident as you were when you first called out to Christ, hold on to that confidence. Then you've become a partaker of Christ. Uh, I may have shared this. I think I did somewhat recently, but our, our, uh, when I was at Rama during orientation, and I believe this was on the first day of orientation, Fred Brothers, the dean, got up and, and shared, uh, asked us this. He says, this is going to sound silly. We were a big class, 900 or so of us. And he said, how many of you, raise your hand if you believe God called you to Rama." And everybody raised their hand because you couldn't get in unless you believed you were called. Even if you didn't have to prove your calling, part of the application was, has God called you to Rama?" So everybody raised their hand. Sorry, put your hands down. I want you to think, just for a moment, take a minute, and remember how you know you are called. Maybe it was spoken over you. Maybe you just had an unction. But you are here. You uprooted your life for a reason. You came here because you are convinced that God called you here. Right? Right. But remember the moment that you became convinced. Because hard times will come. Six months from now, you might be wondering where your next tuition payment is coming from. You might be wondering where your next rent payment is coming from. And you might be tempted to throw in the towel. You need to remember how you know God called you here. Because that will be an anchor for your faith. God will not call you somewhere where he can't keep you. He doesn't call you to do something he doesn't equip you to do. But when you start to doubt... Maybe I'm not called here. Then you lose faith for the provision to stay. Same thing with our salvation. How did you know to call on Jesus? How did you know it was right in the first place? Don't let go of that confidence. Now, we move on. Uh, this letter goes on to talk about the rest, the resting that God has provided and promised. And he's not talking about heaven. When, he, when we see this, they shall not enter my rest, referring in this case to the land of promise, it's easy to see that as seeing, well, what, what, then what the, the point that Hebrews is making here is you won't go to heaven because the land of promise is a, is a, is a type of heaven. He's not talking about that. He's, he, he goes on to talk about, uh, and he's, not that he doesn't mention heaven, but it's not, certainly not exclusive. I don't think it's the, the central point here. In Hebrews 4, and here's one more long passage, and then everything else will be smaller references. But let's read this, because I can't, I can't eliminate anything from this and not have the proper context. In, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does that reference make you think of? 
the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world, right? Now, uh, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time. And it has been said, and here it is again, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Third time. For if Joshua had given them rest, meaning given them, led them into the land of promise. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. Now, this is a great example of why context is important. It's why I read this whole passage, one of the reasons. Verse 9 includes, depending on what translation you're reading, it includes the word Sabbath. Some translations say there remains a Sabbath for the people of God. Some say there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And some have used that one reference to argue that we should observe the Sabbath the same way they did in the Old Testament. Uh, Now, I do believe in the principle that a day without work, a day of rest, and I would include recreation in that rest, is a part of how God ordered our lives. It's a part of the order of creation. Do you know, it's interesting, uh, that years and months have, a, have an astronomical, a cosmological way of being measured. You know, a year is 365 days, not because somebody just decided to break life up into 365 days increments. Uh, It's 365 days because that's how long it takes us to journey around the sun. A day is 24 hours because that's how long it takes uh, to complete uh, one rotation on its axis. A month, even though it's not precise, but a month is based on the phases of the moon. One uh, orbit around the earth uh, by the moon is a month. The week has absolutely no basis in nature. You ever stop and think about that? Nothing happens in terms of of the seasons or astronomy or cosmology that indicates life should be broken up into seven-day periods. That is specifically by God's design. Seven days, and the seventh one is the Sabbath. Now, so I believe that that is built into here, but that's not what the writer is talking about here. This is a great, like I said, it's a great example of this. what this verse is clearly talking about is ceasing from works as a means to achieve salvation. This is what the Jew, what the Hebrews had labored under until they met Christ. We must work, we must fulfill the law without realizing that God had done everything already. The rest that God provides for those of us who believe is the rest, the confidence in knowing that all of the work is done. It is finished. Look at what it says next, and you'll certainly recognize part of this. Uh, Still in Hebrews chapter 4, picking it up in verse 11. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living 
and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The same example of disobedience. If we are not going to enter his rest, this is what it's talking about, if we are not going to enter his rest, then what's going to happen is we are going to be thrust backward into working for our salvation. Now, what's going to happen then? You're ultimately going to disobey again. And here's why. And this is the point. This is why the, the, the word is alive and active part is in there. We will disobey and the word is going to reveal our disobedience because even if you are arrogant enough to believe that you can keep his law externally, the word is so sharp that it will show you that even if you did everything right on the outside, your heart was wrong. Your intentions were not right. And therefore we fail. The only work that will get you into heaven is the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross and that is the rest that we enter into. Therefore, picking it up in verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, where this goes next is to describe Jesus as the perfect high priest, and it goes on for five chapters. The perfect high priest. But remember this for now. What does the priest do? He represents man to God, represents us to God. The priest intercedes and what? Makes offerings, sacrifices on behalf of the people. Moses, in his role as priest and prophet, had what the Bible itself declares as a unique standing with God. Do you remember there was a time when Aaron and Miriam we're complaining about Moses. And they're like, oh, Moses really uh, thinks he's something special, but I can remember, remember when God did this? He spoke through me. He spoke through you. Does Moses really think he's the only one? They're talking about this among themselves, and God shows up and says, hey, you two, come here. Uh, yeah, you, you know what? You're half right. If I've got a word of prophecy, I can deliver that through you. I can deliver that through you or anybody. I can use anybody. But don't make a mistake Moses is different. I'll speak to you in a dream or a vision. I speak to him face to face like a man does with his friend. Moses was unique. unique using that word properly. We say unique, we mean special or different. Unique means one of a kind. But even Moses was not perfect. Do you remember that Moses' own disobedience, that God called Moses' unbelief, you can go check it out in Numbers, kept him from entering the land of promise. 
Anyway, Moses, in his unique standing with God, could still sympathize with fallen man and intercede passionately. Even though Moses was on a completely different plane, when God would be ready to pour out his, you know, I'm going to destroy these people. They've disbelieved me for the last time. They're stubborn. What did Moses do? Even though he was unique, even though he was stand, had standing that nobody else in Israel did, he didn't say, yeah, you're right, God, I'm with you. Let's blast them and start all over with me. No, Lord, I'm standing with them. If you destroy them, you have to destroy me. Whole nother sermon there, preached it many times, that that's why God told Moses he was going to do what he was going to do, so that Moses would intercede and God could spare the people, legally. But here's, here's, here's my whole point. We're almost done, really. There's one paragraph left in my notes here. Moses was special. Moses was absolutely unique as a prophet and a priest, but at least he was a man. Even though he had that special standing with God, he was a man, and he was a man with his own failures. So even though he was this high, he could still sympathize with us. How can a sinless, holy, eternal God sympathize with us? By becoming a man and being subject to the same temptations and even death. Only thing Jesus didn't do is sin. He was all man but the sin, and he was all God but the glory. And because he did experience real temptation and real pain and real death, he absolutely can sympathize with us when we go to him needing forgiveness, when we go to him needing healing when we go to him even fearful and dying, he is sympathetic. So because of that, and that's what's beautiful about, him, about, Paul, about the author of Hebrews pointing this out, is that he is a great high priest, and he is perfect, and he's the son of God, but because he became a man, you don't need to be afraid when you go before him. You might, think of, you might feel afraid. You might feel ashamed. But know this, what's he saying here? As you crawl before the throne, don't worry that God is going to kill you. That's not what he's saying. You come boldly before the throne. And what are you going to find there? You are going to find mercy. You are going to find You are not going to find a God who's sitting there again. What? You're going to find mercy, and you're going to find grace for help. Guess what? That's still what you find. And there is one thing. This is our privilege as believers and this is why you'll see again and again in this letter, we see Jesus. Don't forget, again, his whole point here, this, everything up to this point is, remember, Jesus, and this is, these were people, many of them he's writing to, lived in the same lifetime. Their lives overlapped with Jesus's. This wasn't ancient history. This is a real guy. Many of them had seen him. This is our high priest, He's real. 
Don't forget, Jesus was a real man who really died for you, and he really is God, and he is your priest. He's making intercession for you. The offerings, this was the other big duty of the priests, right? The offerings were already made. The high priest, the highest priest in the land, had to make that highest offering once a year, but he had to do it every year. Jesus, our high priest, made the final perfect offering once and for all. So that when we go before him, we, two categories of people now, we as believers don't need to worry, don't need to feel condemned. All of our sins are forgiven. And we, what we, we don't find condemnation. We find mercy. We find grace for help in time of need. The unbeliever can even go before this high priest. And what does the unbeliever find there? Salvation. Salvation. Stand up with me. Our incomparable high priest, the incomparable high priest, Jesus Christ, has already made the final sacrifice for sin. Everything that is necessary for everybody to be saved was done 2,000 years ago. Do you remember uh, last week we were talking about that passage in uh, Luke, was it Matthew? Where, where the, there are few, few there are that find it. Remember, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, and few there are that find it. The, the, narrow is the way that leads to righteousness, leads to life, and few there are that find it. And I explained to you that I don't think that means that there are few people who are saved. It just means there are few people who find it on their own, and therefore we have to share it with them. You didn't find Jesus. Most of you didn't. You were introduced. Somebody led you to him. In this, in Hebrews, one of the scriptures that we didn't read today, it says uh, his, his uh, purpose was to bring many sons, many children to God. Is it few or is it many? It's many. But Jesus brings us, and we bring people to Jesus. So a couple things, and then we'll dismiss. If you're a believer, are you doing your part to bring the many? Jesus is going to present many to his Father. All right? But he uses us. He works through us to lead people to him. So when I talk about a recommitment, I'm not just talking about your sin. When I talk about a rededication for a believer, yeah, I know I'm saved, I'm not living right. Yeah, you need to live right. I'm talking about stepping it up and saying, what am I doing to fulfill the Great Commission? Living the gospel isn't, not, isn't just not sinning. It's walking in that victory, it's walking in that boldness, it's walking in that confidence and preaching the gospel. That's part of living the gospel, right? So when you, if, you, if you desire to recommit, reconnect, rededicate your life to him, include that in your rededication. I'm not just going to lay down a bad habit. I'm not just going to stop cussing or doing this. I am going to live the gospel and preach the gospel as my Lord has commanded me. I was led to Christ. I will lead someone to Christ. And if you're in here today and you have never made that confession of faith, God is not up there hoping you don't. God, the only reason we are all still here, man, life just gets crazier and crazier. The news will drive you nuts. And we think, those of us who are believers, it can't be long now. And if it gets much worse, I'm ready to just say, Lord, get us out of here. I feel like that more, certainly by the week, probably by the day, and yet at the same time, that's selfish because Peter tells us 
The reason it seems like it's taken so long is not because God is slow, it's because God is patient. And he want, he's waiting until as many people can be saved as possible. One more day is one more soul. Maybe a million more souls. Maybe a billion more souls. So on one hand, yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus. On the other hand, Lord, if you're going to give me a week, if you're going to give us another week, let us be found with our hands on the plow. Anyway, I was speaking to the unbeliever. If you've not made that confession of faith, know that God is not up there hoping you don't get saved. He's up there saying, please, it's already paid for. What do I have to do? All right, I'm ready to be saved. What do I got to do? Nothing. Just enter into the rest. This is a rest for the believer. It is finished. It is done. I ceased from my working. You cease from yours. You can't work to earn it. It was paid for. Will you just receive payment for that salvation? Just put me in charge of your life and receive the salvation. Are you willing to receive that offer today? Does anybody need to receive that offer today? I'm, 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 I'm not a big bow your heads and close your eyes kind of guy. Jesus hung naked on a cross and died that way to purchase our salvation. And if we want to get in on that salvation, I think the least we can do is raise our hand and publicly declare it. Is there anybody in here today who needs to say, I don't think I am saved. I kind of thought I was, but I don't remember doing that. I don't remember praying. I don't remember confessing him as Lord. It says, if, if, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Do you remember the moment you made that confession? Do you remember the moment you made that declaration where you invited him to be your Lord? Does anybody need to say today, I need to do that. I need to be saved. All right. Everybody else. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer to remind us. And it's a prayer of celebration. It's a prayer of thankfulness. And it's a prayer of uh, dedication to commit ourselves to remembering not just what we believe but remembering who we believe what he's done for us how much he loves us and what he means to us and to the world heavenly father thank you for this time together thank you for your word thank you for jesus thank you jesus for being the high priest our high priest for making intercession for us for the sacrifice the offering that you have made once and for all to purchase our salvation, to purchase us. Father, forgive us for any way and any time we have taken that for granted and we have failed to appreciate that great salvation. And certainly forgive us, Lord, for any way we have failed to properly represent you and live out that salvation. You know what we're made of, Lord, and we're very thankful for your precious promises, the promises of provision, of protection, of healing. We do claim those. We speak them over ourselves. We speak them over our households, and we speak them over this local church. We receive them, and we're confident that you want them for us. Just remind us, Lord, that we are not going to be rewarded in heaven for how well provided we were 
and how well protected and how well healed. That you've given us those things so that we can make a difference in the world around us. So fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and remind us daily why we are still here. In Jesus' name, amen. One more prayer and then we will dismiss. It's time to uh, receive our offering. I want to thank you again for your continued and faithful support to this body, to this church. Uh, it enables us to keep going and doing what we're doing, and it also enables us to continue to be a blessing to ministries who are counting on us more than ever. And what a joy it is, what a privilege it is to partner with so many excellent ministries if uh, you should have received, if you needed one, you should have gotten an envelope on your way in. But if you need an envelope for a cash offering, you can raise your hand and we can still get you one. Otherwise, uh, checks, if you haven't already made it out. I know many of you have been dropping off your offerings on the way in. But checks get made out to Living Word Family Church. If you want to sit down, you can. Uh, but we'll just, uh, I'm going to pray over the offering. Please, again, patiently wait to be dismissed by Rose. And you can deposit your offering in the appropriate receptacle as you exit, and then continue to move through the lobby outside into that wonderful sunshine. We are a healed church. We are a protected church, and we are a COVID-free zone, but we are going to continue to be wise. We are going to continue to walk circumspectly, and we are going to respect one another's space and honor one another. The things that we do in this current climate are never going to be out of fear or out of cowering or out of blind obedience, but out of love and preference and patience, okay? Meanwhile, uh, God has made us great and precious promises, and the, but the promise of provision, I always, always mention three main things, pr uh, protection, provision, and healing. That, pr uh, that promise of uh, provision, like it or not, is predicated upon our faithfulness to honor him in the tithe and offering. You can't get away from that in the Old or New Testament. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you obey him in the tithe and offering, he will open up the windows and pour out blessing. There's not room enough to contain. If you uh, do not neglect the house of the Lord, uh, he will rebuke the devourer for your sake. Doesn't matter how much you make if there's a devourer eating all of it, right? So thank God for those promises and thank God for his provision. Let's honor him and worship him with our giving. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for uh, your presence in this place, and thank you again for your promises. We uh, exercise our faith in those promises right now by obeying you, by obeying your command to give, and we believe that as we do it, as we do it cheerfully, as we do it expectantly, that we will receive the manifestation of the promise that you've made, that it'll be given back to us, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Father, we receive it by faith so that we can give again. Thank you for bread to eat and seed to sow. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.